Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening for those of you listening in Europe. I'm Bill Glaskell, Senior Vice President and Director of State and Local Initiatives at the Volcker Alliance. I'm here today with Susan Wachter, my partner and co-head of the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And this is Special Briefing. We have an exciting program for you today. It's our special briefing on the year ahead for states and municipalities. The year has gotten off to a rather intensive start, and I expect we're going to have a lot of other intensive moments in Congress, in the White House, and in state houses over the coming 12 months. So stay tuned now for a terrific presentation. We have lined up on our panel today. Besides me and Susan, of course, we're expecting Mark Zandi from Moody's Analytics to join us. We also have Shelby Kearns from the National Association of State Budget Officers with the latest numbers on state budgets. Eric Kim is head of U.S. state ratings for Fitch, who will be discussing the ratings outlook and the general macro outlook for states and municipalities. And Vikram Rai from Citibank head strategist, and market maven known to many of you from his weekly market calls. Vikram, of course, will talk about the market and also what he and his colleagues at City expect to see out of the new Congress, which is very likely to enact more stimulus legislation on an express basis and continue that through the year. So we're going to move right to Shelby Kearns from NASBO. This has been a really exciting, confusing, and confounding year for many states. Some states are doing better than expected. Other states are in uh, rather deep financial straits, but all states are affected by COVID. So Shelby, why don't you tell us some about the latest in your fall survey of budget officers? Thanks, Bill. I appreciate the chance to be with all of you today. And confounding is definitely a good word to describe what we've seen over the past 10 months or so. The data that I'll be citing today comes from NASBO's recently released 2020 Fall Fiscal Survey, which collects information on states' enacted budgets. It's important to note that the data represents a point in time when the state completed the survey, and those points in time differ by a state, depending on when the state enacted its budget for fiscal 2021, and also how often a state revises its revenue forecast. The budget figures in the survey were enacted as long ago as April 2019 for some states with biennial budgets, and as recently as September 2020 for others. While some of the most dire predictions of the last 10 months for state revenue did not come to pass, states are continuing to face fiscal stress. After nine consecutive years of growth, states saw revenue decline in fiscal 2020 and greater declines are forecasted for fiscal 2021, leading to enacted budgets for fiscal 2021, calling for the first general fund spending decrease since the Great Recession. Preliminary actual general fund spending for fiscal 2020 came in at $903.1 billion, which is the 4% annual increase. While actual general fund spending for fiscal 2020 did increase, it was 1.7% below the level that states expected to spend prior to the COVID-19 crisis. This speaks to the severe rapid impacts that the COVID-19 crisis has had on state budgets, given that there's typically a lag between the start of an economic downturn and state fiscal stress necessitating budget cuts. 
the pandemic and ensuing economic impacts hit late in the fiscal year, making it hard for states to rely too much on spending cuts to close those budget shortfalls. Still, states took steps to rein in spending for the remainder of the year, including targeted and across-the-board cuts, hiring freezes, furloughs, layoffs, and other strategies. States enacted budgets for fiscal 2021 are projected to reduce general fund spending by 1.1% compared to preliminary actual fiscal 2020 levels, marking the first time states enacted a net spending decrease in more than a decade. Compared to governor's budget proposals for fiscal 2021, which were released by most states just a few months earlier than their enacted budgets, those enacted budgets show a 5.5% reduction in general fund spending. States had to considerably adjust their spending plans in the spring and summer compared to what governors recommended in the winter due to that rapid transformation of state fiscal conditions as large segments of the economy ground to a halt due to the public health measures. K-12 education saw the largest reduction and higher education, transportation, and all other government programs saw net decreases as well. Medicaid and public assistance saw sizable increases in spending reflecting those rising caseloads and spending pressures for health and human services as a result of the economic downturn. So far, states reported approving net reductions post-enactment for fiscal 2021 due to a shortfall. The most commonly used strategies by states to manage their budgets and address shortfalls included spending cuts, both targeted and across the board, personnel actions, including hiring freezes, furloughs, layoffs, and salary reductions, and use of one-time measures such as rainy day funds, other fund transfers using their prior year balances. Only a few states have used revenue increases to help close the gap so far. Other strategies that were reported to reduce spending were reducing local aid and making Medicaid program changes. And some states also reported using federal assistance to offset some eligible general fund costs related to pandemic response and relief. In addition to the spending side of the state budget, our survey takes a look at the revenue side. Again, there's some timing issues to be aware of. The fiscal 2021 figures are based on state's most current general fund revenue estimates as of the time of data collection, compared to the preliminary actual revenues for fiscal 2020. It's also important to note that these numbers are not adjusted for the impact of the tax deadline shift, which deflated fiscal 2020 revenue and inflated fiscal 2021 revenue. Also, it's important to note that some states' fiscal 2021 most current estimates predate COVID-19. So before the COVID-19 crisis hit, states reported that they expected general fund revenue growth of 2.9% in fiscal 2020 and 3% in fiscal 2021. Compared to those pre-COVID projections, preliminary actual fiscal 2020 general fund collections declined 3.8% and fiscal 2021 current estimates show a decline of 10.8%. Such a steep revenue loss in just over a one-year period is noteworthy, particularly since federal stimulus measures, including enhanced unemployment compensation, the Paycheck Protection Program, checks directly to individuals and other measures were in place that helped prop up the economy and thus state revenues during much of this time. It's also important to remember that state tax collections, particularly from income taxes, usually lag economic downturns. So seeing such a drastic loss of revenue so early gives us a lot of concern for what's to come. With states facing these consecutive years of general fund revenue declines in fiscal 2020 and fiscal 2021, there's a great deal of uncertainty about how long it will take for state budgets to recover. This is compounded, of course, by the fact that we have less economic stimulus at the current time. After the Great Recession, even though revenues began to grow again in fiscal 2011, 
it took until fiscal 2013 for state general fund revenue to surpass its 2008 levels without adjusting for inflation. States actually did not see revenue fully restored to fiscal 2008 levels until fiscal 2018 in inflation-adjusted terms. States also reported on their rainy day funds in our survey. Some states did turn to their rainy day funds to close shortfalls in fiscal 2020, and we've also seen some make use of their savings to address projected gaps in fiscal 2021 as well, either in their enacted or revised budgets. Before the COVID-19 crisis hit, state rainy day funds were at an all-time high after a decade of rebuilding reserves following the Great Recession. Total rainy day fund balances as a percentage of general fund spending declined from 9.1% in fiscal 2019 to 7.9% in fiscal 2020, though the median rainy day fund balance did not yet record a decline. And I know that many were expecting to see states drain their rainy day accounts to balance their budgets, so it's important to note that generally states spread their usage of savings over the length of a downturn to smooth out cuts. If you use it all at once early on, it simply delays cuts and makes them steeper in the next fiscal year. So you often see the use of savings coupled with cuts to meet revenue shortfalls. And as states begin the 2021 legislative session, there continues to be a great deal of uncertainty around state budget conditions. Looking ahead, a slowdown in jobs recovery, lack of direct federal aid to states, and surging coronavirus caseloads are expected to strain many states' economies and budgets further. Most states have been able to avoid severe budget cuts so far, through the use of rainy day funds, federal assistance, and other one-time measures. But challenging budget choices lie ahead for states as they prepare to set their spending plans for fiscal 2022, and also for fiscal 2023 for biennial states, as well as make adjustments to their budgets for fiscal 2021. As I mentioned, state tax collections usually lag economic downturns, and the deepest spending reductions tend to follow even later, as was observed during the Great Recession. We don't want to see states enact spending cuts and personnel reductions as the rest of the economy is beginning to rebound as that would drag out the recovery. Even if state tax revenues begin to recover from substantial declines induced by the pandemic, rising spending demands from an uneven recovery are expected to put added pressure on state budgets. Positive vaccine developments recently have offered some reason for optimism, but the challenges that lie ahead for effective vaccine distribution and related steps to control spread of the coronavirus are also significant. On a positive note, we have seen improved revenue projections and collections from some states. That's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that improved compared to the catastrophic predictions in the spring and summer doesn't translate to a positive or a return to the pre-COVID outlook. We're also seeing the impact of the pandemic on state revenue has been uneven. Energy producing states and those dependent upon tourism and those with higher unemployment rates are seeing a greater impact. States with economies more reliant upon services are being hit harder. Tax structures and virus transmission levels also affect the impact on state revenue. Due to this unevenness, the aggregate numbers we report can sometimes mask states who are experiencing extremely dire revenue shortfalls. And while the newest federal package will offer some help to state budgets through its economic stimulus, its lack of direct flexible fiscal relief to state governments will require more spending cuts and our tax increases at the state level, leading to a slower and more uneven economic recovery. Well, thank you, Shelby. Hold that thought about employment 
both government and private employment. I know that's something that that Mark Zandi deals with in his latest outlook that popped out last night. I just want to remind you that you're listening to Special Briefing, which is co-hosted by the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And this and all of our past events are available both on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. In addition, you'll find some really terrific research reports from Fitch Ratings and from NASBO, which you are welcome to open up and download at your leisure. It's the state and local outlook and uh, NASBO's latest uh, numbers that shall be discussed. So please do that. Why don't we go right to Eric Kim from Fitch. Fitch has an economic outlook, of course, but also is one of the big three rating agencies. We have a number of states and localities, thinking in New Jersey, Illinois, Chicago, that have significant financial issues. We have continued pension and OPEB debt dragging states down, but we also are looking at possibly a record year for municipal borrowing. So Eric, tell us how this all works out in the ratings outlook and the economic outlook. Thanks, Bill. And thanks to the rest of the Volcker Alliance and Susan and Penn IUR for inviting me to participate. So as Bill indicated, I'll take a few minutes to provide some credit perspective as we start 2021. First, I'll, I'll talk about Fitch's credit outlook for state and local governments and what it says about our expectations for ratings. Then I'll touch on the state revenue picture, what that means for states and, and to some extent local governments. And the economic outlook, of course, is critical for, for tax revenues and budgets. So I'll finish up by talking about some analysis we've done on some state and local level economic activity and what it tells us about the path to recovery and the role of federal stimulus has played. But before I dive in, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork and just be clear about what I mean when I'm referring to credit quality and credit ratings. Ratings, of course, are Fitch's view on a government's ability and willingness to repay bondholders. They're not a report card or a snapshot of a government's fiscal condition or its economic situation. High credit quality does not mean a government is running large surpluses with a booming economy. It simply means that a government has the tools and the willingness to honor its long-term obligations through the inevitable ups and downs of economic cycles. So Fitch's credit outlook for state and local governments this year is stable relative to a very challenging 2020. Last year, we downgraded four state ratings, Alaska, Hawaii, Illinois, and New Jersey. And we've got six ratings right now on a negative outlook, Alaska and Illinois, Kentucky, Nevada, New Jersey, and New York. And again, the rating list is part of the attachments that Bill is referring to. So you can, you can download that from the handout section. Now, on the local government side, we downgraded roughly 4% of government ratings and have about 10% of the ratings on a negative outlook or watch. It was a difficult year for state and local credit quality. But it was also one that reflects the inherent credit strength of the sector. So Fitch affirmed the vast majority of state and local government ratings, and most of those ratings have a stable outlook, which means we do not anticipate rating changes for at least the next one to two years. So most, and Shelby touched on this, most but not all states enter the crisis fairly well positioned, ample reserves, and all of our state ratings were on stable outlook going into the pandemic. And Shelby talked about the reserve position of states heading to the downturn and, and where we expect them to be, where they are now, where, where we expect them to be. States also, of course, benefit from very broad budgetary powers to uh, address fiscal challenges. It means raising revenues, cutting spending, and of course, pushing fiscal issues down the ladder to local governments. Now, fortunately, local governments recognize this and were even better positioned from a reserve perspective. 
just taking a look at the government that, that we cover, at the end of fiscal 2019, the median level of reserves was between 20 and 30 percent of spending for cities, counties, and school districts. Now, back in March and April, as the pandemic was unfolding, we were very concerned about the potential for a real economic meltdown and what that would mean for state and local budgets. Unfortunately, the reality has generally been better than that worst fear. But that's not to say that conditions haven't been difficult. Again, alluding to some of the points that Shelby was making, state revenues took a hit. The revenue outlook is materially better now, though, in many states than in the first few months of the pandemic. You have states like California, New Jersey, Connecticut, Maryland, all seeing revenue growth come in well ahead of earlier projections. And importantly, ahead of the revenue estimates used for budgets enacted for the current fiscal year which started on July 1 for most states. Illinois, such as lowest rated states, has seen revenue collections come in much stronger than budgeted, and the state actually revised up its latest revenue forecast by $2 billion for the current fiscal year. Now, improvement versus pessimistic budgets does not mean states are in the clear by any means. There have still been revenue challenges. Looking at some data collected by the Urban Institute, it covers about 46 states, total state tax collections for the March to November period, which is a pretty effective way to fully capture the effects of the pandemic. It's down a little over 3% year over year in 2020 versus 2019. It's roughly 22 to $23 billion in that nine-month span. When you dig into the individual state-by-state state numbers from the Urban Institute, we can see some pretty interesting details. The 28 states report year-over-year tax revenue declines between March and November, 18 states actually reported increases. On one end, we see states like Hawaii and Florida with their tourism economies heavily affected, or Texas and North Dakota dealing with energy price shocks, all seeing steep declines of 10% or more in that March to November period. On the other end, you've got states like Colorado and Utah and Idaho, all high-growth states leading into the pandemic. And Alabama and South Dakota, two states that are fairly unusual for taxing groceries at their full sales tax rate, all those states saw tax revenue growth of 3% or more in that same period. On the local side, recent data is much harder to come by. In general, local governments tend to be more reliant on property taxes, which are a lagging and imperfect reflection of economic trends. We've not seen notable increases in delinquencies at this point. And in fact, the housing market has been doing relatively well in the midst of the global pandemic. We think there are a few key reasons for the less significant revenue shortfalls than initially feared. One, and this perhaps doesn't get as much attention, is the 2018 Wayfair decision from the Supreme Court that allowed state and local governments to much more easily tax online sales. Since that decision, states have been making statutory and administrative changes to capture this revenue. And in many places, that was just in time as we very quickly shifted in 2020 to an online heavy retail experience. A second reason for the less significant revenue shortfall than originally feared is, of course, the effect of federal stimulus. Getting several trillion dollars flowing into the economy just weeks after the country goes into a lockdown in the spring really boosted economic activity and therefore state and local tax revenues. It's just so striking. When you look during the second quarter of 2020, when the nation saw an historic more than 30% decline in GDP, personal income actually rose. It's just not something that happens during downturns. There was so much federal aid flowing to individuals 
that in aggregate, it more than offset the loss in wages and other income. And the third reason that we see revenues have generally come in ahead of expectations is the uneven effects of the pandemic on the recovery. It's well documented how COVID has really laid bare the inequities in everything from education to healthcare, and the economy is no different. I'm talking about the so-called K-shaped recovery. Predominantly low-wage sectors like leisure and hospitality have been hit the hardest and seen the most job losses, while higher-wage sectors are emerging relatively unscathed. And those earners are the ones driving more of the economic activity and paying more in taxes. It's really critical to emphasize that better-than-expected state tax collections do not mean that all is well with the economy. Far from it. One thing we're really keeping an eye on is the uneven recovery in employment. We're seeing that certain parts of the country are definitely recovering faster than others. Hawaii very clearly stands out as a state that suffered one of the steepest employment declines in 2020 and has also been one of the slowest to recover. The state regained just about 10% of the jobs it lost versus a more than 50% recovery for the nation. You can see that show up in the Urban Institute state revenue collections data as Hawaii has seen more than a 10% year-over-year dip in the March to November period. And on the flip side, we see states like Michigan and Vermont, which both actually saw even deeper employment declines than Hawaii, but have both gained back about 60% of jobs ahead of the national level. And Michigan and Vermont are both states that saw year-over-year tax revenue growth between March and November. So I want to end with a little bit more discussion on federal stimulus and the implications for state and local governments. There was, in our view, significant direct aid to state and local governments in that first round of stimulus bills beyond the economic benefits that I touched on earlier. There was an ongoing increase in federal Medicaid funding, aid for schools and transit, which offset fiscal pressure on states in particular, and the $150 billion in coronavirus relief funds for state and local governments. And there were some limitations on that money, but with the Treasury Department's open-ended guidance, we've seen a number of governments use those funds to help balance budgets. And turning to the most recent $900 billion stimulus bill, we have a summary of our take on that, and it's part of the handouts as well that the bill referenced. There's economic support in there with a new round of PPP, direct stimulus checks, supplemental unemployment insurance, and there's even more aid for schools aid for transit, and even state transportation departments. All of that takes some fiscal pressure off of state and local governments. Of course, this stimulus is coming during the worst phase of the pandemic, with governments uh, reimposing various levels of lockdown and the economy showing signs of slowing and perhaps even dipping back into recession, which will certainly have an effect on tax collections. Whether the stimulus will be enough to stem that tide really just comes down to the virus and the vaccine. You know, part of that potential is the new stimulus bill that's getting talked about a lot, obviously. We'll, we'll get more details tonight from President-elect Biden. He's expected to, to make a big speech. From various reports, it does seem like testing and vaccination funding, more economic relief, some housing security measures, and more direct aid for state and local governments are likely to be part of the, the Biden-Harris team's proposal. The more direct aid would certainly be helpful for state and local governments, but I do want to note that Fitch's ratings for state and local governments do not incorporate or rely on any new aid for state and locals. So with that, I will turn it back to Bill. Thank you very much, Eric. 
Again, let's hold some a couple of thoughts for the question period. You're listening to Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. Mark Zandi is on the line. Mark, of course, is the chief economist and big dog at Moody's Analytics, economy.com. And, and also is- uh, also Did you say big dog, a, Bill? Is that what you said? Big yes, dog? I did. So, hey, I like that. Yeah. Also a fellow at Penn IUR, as am I. Susan, why don't you come on the horn and we'll mix up the order and uh, and get going again. Well, thank you so much, Bill. And Mark, I think we have a new title for you. I think this is a good one. We're always- <laughs> So pleased to have you, but today, perhaps more than ever, because there are so many different directions that it appears things are going on. On the one hand, the virus is hitting hard, harder than ever. On the other hand, we have new stimulus coming. So what do you see? Well, thanks, Susan and Bill, and really appreciate the opportunity to speak to the group. Uh, Very kind of you to have me. And I'll do two things. One, I'll just give you a, a quick assessment of where I think the economy is uh, headed. And then I'll talk a little bit about our own state and local budget uh, forecasting work that we've been doing to help inform some of the discussion at the federal level around fiscal, additional fiscal support, and of course, at the state and local level. With regard to the economy, we're getting off to a tough start. 2021 is uh, starting much like 2020. Uh, The economy is struggling and it goes not surprisingly, right back to the pandemic. As you pointed out, Susan, pandemic is raging. Infections, uh, hospitalizations, deaths are all on the rise, and it's disruptive. It's doing damage to the economy. You can see that most clearly in the job market. Job growth has uh, stalled out. In fact, in December, uh, employment declined. And in industries that are most directly affected by the pandemic, restaurants, accommodation, uh, recreational activities, retailing activity, transportation. You know, it's in part because local officials need to put restrictions on business activity to try to contain the virus. You know, know, Susan and I, we're we're from Philly and the city of Philadelphia and the state of Philadelphia has has had restrictions for the past month or two, and that's slowed activity. And then, of course, people self-quarantine and become more cautious uh, in in what they do, and that restricts uh, economic activity. So the economy is struggling. And I would go so far as as to say that if lawmakers had not passed the $900 billion fiscal rescue package back a few weeks ago now, the economy likely would have experienced a double-dip recession. We'd go back into recession in the early part of uh, 2021. But fortunately, they passed that legislation, and that should stem the declines in employment. We're not going anywhere fast as long as the pandemic is raging, but at least we won't go back into recession with that help. So it's uh, going to be a tough start. doesn't feel like you know we're going to make our way to the other side of the pandemic, at least for a few months, not until mid-year. And uh, between now and then, the economy is going to struggle to grow. Now, having said that, I do think there's good reasons to be optimistic as we move a lot of part of uh, spring into the summer that goes to two things, really, maybe three. The first is the vaccinations. They've gotten off to a slow start, but I'm optimistic that it'll kick into a higher gear here. The Biden administration's coming in and putting a priority on, on this, and I think we'll get some professional management around vaccine distribution, and it should improve. And the consensus view, and I, and I would concur with it, is that about half of Americans will have been vaccinated by, let's say, July 4th. And then you consider all the folks that have been already infected by the virus. We'll be getting pretty close to herd immunity 
sometime in the third quarter. You know, once we're there, I think uh, the economy will kick into a much higher gear. There's a lot of pent-up demand for various consumer services, particularly by high-income households who have saved a lot of money. Here's a fact for you. Um, Folks in the top quintile of the income distribution now have well over a trillion dollars in excess savings, savings above which you would typically expect. And that that just goes to the pandemic and the self-quarantining that they've been doing. I think there's reason to be optimistic around that, although, you know, clearly a lot of risk in terms of timing. A uh, second reason is fiscal policy. I mentioned the $900 billion stimulus uh, support package that was passed back in December. I do expect we'll get another package here soon uh, after the inauguration. President-elect Biden is going to propose a very large support package today, uh, at some point today, rumored to be around $2 trillion. Just for context, there's already been $3.2 trillion in support provided since the pandemic began. So this would bring it up to $5.2 trillion in total if you got all $2 trillion through Congress. $5.2 trillion, that's 25% of 2019 GDP, pre-pandemic GDP. So that's a lot of uh, support. I don't think he's going to get $2 trillion through. That would be a surprise. Probably have to go through the reconciliation process and you still need 50 votes and just politically it's going to be tough. So if you told me we got another $750 billion to a trillion in support. I'd say that sounds about right. But that would get to the economy sometime this spring, March, April, May, and that should help the economy get through to the other side of the pandemic. And then I do expect we may, uh, the Biden team will come up with another fiscal proposal later in the year, something closer to build back better the uh, economic policy proposal that Vice President Biden campaigned on. So we'll probably get a little little more support at some point later in the year as well. But with all that fiscal support, that's a lot of juice. That should really help the economy get going, obviously, particularly on the the other side of the pandemic. And then finally, the third reason is monetary policy. The Fed got its foot flat on the accelerator, made it very clear that they're not going to normalize short-term interest rates, which are at the zero lower bound until the economy is clearly at full employment. Inflation is above 2% target. That's at least a couple of years down the road. So that means very low interest rates for a considerable period of time. And that also should be very supportive. We can see that in housing markets, commercial real estate markets. Uh, Equity prices are high because of the low interest rates, and that's been very helpful. So Next few months will be difficult as the pandemic is raging, but I think there's really good reasons to be optimistic about our prospects as we make our way into certainly the second half of this year. As, and you know, by this time next year, we should be in full swing. Okay, let me just quickly turn to what all this means for our expectations around state and local budgets. And just to give you a sense of the numbers, obviously we have the, a lot of different models of the economy down to the state level and local level. And we're using these models to estimate what the revenue impact would be on uh, state local governments going forward. And under the baseline outlook, uh, the outlook that I described to you, we're estimating that the uh, combined shortfall, the gross combined shortfall at the state and local level will come in somewhere around $330 billion through fiscal year 2022. That's state local fiscal year 2022, so mid-22 over the next 18 months. There's been money that's already been allocated for state and local governments through previous rescue packages. We estimate that to be 
somewhere that's been unused that will be used uh, that's somewhere around $90 billion. So the net shortfall, net of the existing federal government help is $244 billion. And then there are still some reserve funds left. And we're, if you assume that they're all drawn down completely, that's another $70 billion or so. So the total shortfall for that period through the end of fiscal year 2022 comes in at $170 billion under the base case. Now, let me say, you know, that is quite sizable, although certainly much, much smaller than we were estimating earlier in the pandemic and many of the other estimates coming from folks that do this for a living were measurably higher. So that goes to the better fiscal situation that state governments have found them relative to expectations. So the very dark expectations that existed uh, just a few months ago. And the other thing I would say is I do think it is highly likely that in the fiscal package that the president like Biden proposes today, he won't get all of it through Congress, but he'll get some of it through Congress. I'm confident that much of that $170 billion will be covered by federal government, which is very good news, you know, obviously for state and local governments and their communities, but for the broader macro economy, because clearly these state and local governments would have to do some significant cutting in jobs and programs and services that would be de- very detrimental to macroeconomic growth. So I, you know, I think it's a, it'd be a very positive outcome if we get that aid. And at this point, I think that's uh, more likely than not. You know, I think uh, last time I chatted to the group, uh, it was hard to be a beat, still difficult in the middle of a pandemic, but I will say I am, and I think it comes through in my comments, I am feeling much more optimistic about our prospects going forward. Thank you, Mark. And it's so much nicer to hear you optimistic than the dark place we were hearing you. And of course, for the economy as a whole, we have a lot to go through, uh, but it's good to see that the other side is there. We'll have questions for you, but let me now turn to our next speaker. And our next speaker also has his eyes on the market every day, Vikram Ray, who is the managing director and head of the municipal strategy group at Citigroup. Vikram, all this positive from the fiscal stimulus we have in place and that we expect to have, is that already in the market, in the pricing of munis? What do you see? Hi, Susan, and, and thanks for having me on. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Bill. So yes, I broadly agree with my colleagues. I think it's the Chinese, they have a proverb that says, be careful what you wish for. And last year, amidst the lockdown, yes, there was a lot going on, but I was bored out of my mind sitting at home and I wanted excitement. We got a wish, you know, this year is going to be very exciting. With all that's going on in Washington, I read some views uh, which said that this is not a game changer, the simple majority that the Democrats have. Now, make no mistakes. This is absolutely a game changer because as far as most of uh, President-elect Biden's agenda is concerned, I mean, they can push it along and it doesn't matter whether they have a majority by, it's a 50-50 plus a tiebreaker majority or a majority by five. So there is a lot of focus on tax reform, obviously, because that matters for the municipal market, right? I think Mark and Eric both alluded to it that we will see stimulus, but I think there is some confusion regarding uh, stimulus and then tax reform. So just to refresh your memory, at the end of 2016, when President Trump took office, I mean, the Republicans controlled the White House and, and Congress then too, and they had two reconciliation bills that they could use to pass major legislative and, and partisan initiatives. We are at the same stage now. So the Democrats have two reconciliation bills that they can use. 
Now, as my panelists mentioned, you know, we expect the economic stimulus will come through pretty quickly. But if direct aid as a direct aid to state and local governments, if that is a part of the stimulus package, we can be assured that the Democrats will lose bipartisan support. And so they will have to use the first reconciliation bill for that. So tax reform, while it's in focus, while everybody, while all the investors are thinking about it, and that's what's driving valuations in the market to some extent, tax reform is going to be a Q3 or a Q4 story. And so is infrastructure. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that infrastructure, the initiative, the bill will finally pass this time around because we have seen so many head fakes. In 2016, there was no reason to not pass infrastructure. And I was hopeful that President Trump would go through with it. And they didn't. And we are at the same stage now. But let me talk quickly about the most important factors in the muni market. So one is obviously the rate outlook. The rate outlook is important because it dictates performance for investors, right? So as of now, rates have sold off by about, let's say, 10 to 15 basis points. Now, is there more juice in the seller? I believe there is. I think that outlook is supported by the positive expectations about the economy that my fellow panelists alluded to. So I think we could sell off a little more, though the sell-off will be gradual. It will not be a sharp sell-off. And that's not something which will cause investors to start getting worried about returns. Now, that said, now our market is driven by technicals, right? Fundamentals are important. Credit has never been more important. But ours is a market that is driven by technicals. By that, I mean supply and demand. Now, let's talk about supply for a second. Our expectation for municipal supply for 2021 is $550 billion, right? It's a record expectation. So supply has never been so high. In 2020, we breached 500, and we're expecting 550 billion. But that said, my expectation for supply is already facing some downside risk, and the reasoning is very simple. Now that stimulus seems to be around the corner, and direct aid to state and local governments are, seems to be around the corner, the expectation that state and local governments will use deficit financing, right? That expectation has been moderated. So my earlier thinking was that state and local governments, if aid wasn't forthcoming, they would turn to the municipal market for financing needs, for deficit financing. Now they will hold back. So that will cause some of the supply that we had expected for the first half of the year to dry up, right? So supply will be light to moderate. Now in Q3 and Q4, we expect supply to pick up and some very large states get their budgets in order and supply will pick up. And I'm hoping that the infrastructure package will also come through. And because of that, you know, we will see some extra issues in the market. So supply, like I said, you know, first half, light to moderate. Second half, it should be decent. That said, where demand is concerned, the demand is still very strong, right? I'm a proud resident of New Jersey and, uh, I think our governor is great, but when they plan on raising taxes, I'm not sure if I'll cheer him on, because firstly, I mean, it's not just about my taxes, it's about, it's about policy also. So that fear that higher taxes are around the corner is driving demand tremendously. So there is that, that, okay, higher taxes are around the corner. On a tax-adjusted basis, does it make sense to buy munis? It does, and that's why tax exempts are rallying dramatically. On the other hand, the worries about credit have abated. So we were worried about, as my panelists discussed, we were worried about credit fundamentals. And disagree to some extent, I think credit has never been worse, at least in the last 20 years, right? Credit fundamentals have deteriorated. And yes, the reserves look 
the number was higher after a very long expansion, but was it enough to sustain gaping deficits? It was not, right? So I think credit overall, aggregate credit quality has deteriorated. That said, while I think that you know, I'm still somewhat bearish on credit, I'm bullish on munis. That's a conflict, but that's a conflict which stems from my view of on, on demand and supply. So demand is going to be is higher and there's optimism about credit. That will cause demand to surge. So net-net, supply moderate, demand very strong. So what impact will that have on valuations? So right now, if you look at credit spreads, if you look at muni treasury ratios, Credit spreads have tightened rapidly. Muni treasury ratios, at least for the five-year tenor, the 10-year tenor, they are approaching records. Well, I can't say that they, they have never been lower because you know they used to be lower, say, 20 years ago, but they are dropping. So that just shows that there is more demand than supply, right? So I don't want to say that investors are not going to get paid to take on risk, but yes, I think in general, there is more optimism, which is going to drive valuations tighter and this is going to be especially true towards the first half of the year because we won't have enough supply there's enough demand there are worries about higher taxes and so valuations might drop to almost illogical levels so that's essentially the gist of what i had to say i'm obviously happy to take questions later back to you bill well, thank you, Vikram. Susan, I think you were going to kick off the Q&A period. Just want to remind everybody you're listening to Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And uh, back to you, Susan. Thank you, Bill. I will get back to all of the panelists with a broad question that takes us from the current moment. Thank you all for being so comprehensive in where we are at the current moment, but I will take us to the long run. But first, let me go to Mark on the current moment and the year ahead. When you were here previously, you were fearful of an unemployment spiral potential. And given the lags in the state and local market lags to the overall economy, do you think there will be a decline in employment? Is that in your forecast still, decline in employment in state and local? Or is there enough stimulus to offset the pandemic's negative impact right now in your projections. I note that you do not get back to the previous highs until 2023. So is that in part because of declines in local employment? And then a second question, what's the downside in your rather bullish forecast? What about inflation? What about inflation risks? I do think there will be some more job loss at state and local governments in the next several months. I think those losses, though, will be limited in significant part because of the fiscal support. The $900 billion that was already passed in the law, but more importantly, the support I do expect to be passed in the law over the next month or two. And again, we'll get a better sense of the magnitudes of aid that state governments will get under the Biden relief package. But I suspect it's going to be quite substantive. I mean, he's going to propose some really big numbers, several hundred billion, I would think. And the reality, when it's all said and done, once it gets through Congress, will be less than that. But it'll be pretty close to the budget shortfall that I, 170 billion that I mentioned. So if that's the case, if I'm right about that, or roughly right about that, I think the job loss should be limited. Again, we'll see some job loss in the next few months, just given the the budget issues that the state governments face, but that'll be the worst of it. And And I think that help will forestall more significant job loss going forward. 
With regard to the second question, what could go wrong? Well, fortunately, a lot of things. Top of the list is the pandemic itself. I mean, this is still a script being written. We think we have a grip on it. We think that, you know, everything's going to play out reasonably well by mid-year, make sure the population vaccinated and we're feeling better about things by this time next year, doing things that we all, all love to do. But, you know, who knows? Second, fiscal policy is also vexed because of just the politics of, of all of this and the, and the arcane budget process that will be necessary to get things through into law. The budget reconciliation process is a pretty complicated affair, and that could slow things down or delay things or make the package that finally gets through Congress much smaller than anticipated. If you look a little further out, then there's other things, a lot of other things to be nervous about. And you mentioned one of them, and that is inflation and interest rates. And I, and I, I will say this, I, the biggest macroeconomic surprise to me on the other side of the financial crisis was how low inflation and interest rate remained. Inflation was persistently below the Federal Reserve's 2% target. Ten-year Treasury yields at their very highest at the end of 2018 got over 3%. I would go so far as to say I think the biggest sort of threat or surprise on the other side of the pandemic may actually be how high inflation and perhaps interest rates will be. You know, on the inflation side, I'll mention three things quickly and I'll stop because I know you want to get to other folks. But first, monetary policy, it has shifted, it's changed, the framework has shifted. The Fed wants higher inflation and the Fed's not like the European Central Bank or BOJ, they'll get what they want. You know, that's kind of like the dog kind of catching the truck, Uh, you know, that might be difficult to maneuver. Second, the pandemic has created a, a concentration of market share in lots of different industries. Take retail. You know, mom and pop retailers got crushed. You know, even mid-sized publicly traded retailers have gone bankrupt, and that's the benefit of big retailers. And they'll use that market power on the other side of the pandemic when demand improves. And that's just an example that's evident across a lot of different industries. And finally, I do think we could see price spikes for different types of manufacturer product and commodities, oil, because the supply side of these markets have been rationalized. Global supply chains have been disrupted. Once demand improves, that'll conflate with the lower the rationalized supply and we'll get price spikes, which are temporary. But if they happen at a point when, you know, other dynamics are occurring in labor markets, you might see that get embedded in inflation expectations and we can see higher rates of inflation and interest rates. So I do think that's a concern and a risk that's down the road and, you know, might complicate things for us. I don't think that's an issue for 2021 or 2022, but maybe an issue for 2023 or 2024. I just wanted to jump in one or two things that we, we see as risk potential as well. One is, is related to something Marcus was talking about. We've all touched on the vaccine. I mean, it's, it's incredibly important. It underlies expectations for, for stronger growth. And the rollout obviously has not gone quite as smoothly as planned. And, and there's a pickup in the pace. And then the Biden administration clearly has some plans to increase that as well. But one risk that we see is, is that the rollout does not go as anticipated, that there are hiccups there, administrative or process-wise or worst nightmare effects of, of the new variants we're seeing, right? So the vaccine rollout and how that plays out is an important risk to consider, something that, that we talk about in our economic analysis. And the other thing that we haven't talked about yet that I think is important to think about, particularly when it comes to the new administration and its agenda and stimulus is impeachment, right? The Senate is going to have to take this up and how that plays into what Biden administration is able to get through Congress is we've never been through this. We've never had a start of an administration with an impeachment trial underway. 
So we don't know how it's all going to work and what that means. So that's a big unknown as well. Thank you, Eric, for that. Certainly, there are concerns in the immediate future. And let me ask a longer run of all the panelists, perhaps starting with Vikram and then Shelby and then back to you, Eric. And here's the question from Andrew Halverson, I'm pleased to say, who is an Emeritus Advisory Board member of PennIUR. Andrew Halverson asks, what is the outlook for the finances and credit ratings of the most troubled states five or 10 years down the road? when the pension and OPEB tsunami hits. By most troubled states, I refer to the likes of New Jersey, Illinois, Kentucky, and Connecticut, for example. Vikram? Hey, Susan, that's a very relevant question. And we have worried about pension obligations for a very long time. So I've been covering munis for, for 10 years. My predecessor covered for 40 years, and he told me that his first project was also examining the pension bad boys. And the pension bad boys, and I, I don't want to mention any names on, uh, on the call, but pension bad boys were the same in 1978 as they are now, right? So if we worried about that, we would not be able to buy any paper. So I think we can safely assume, given that you know, I, am, I don't expect rates to sell off dramatically, so that is going to depress returns on pension assets. So I think I can say very, with some conviction, that the pension problem will continue to exacerbate. Now. Will that cause rating agencies to pull the trigger? I am not completely sure because I, I think the rating agencies want to give the state and local governments the benefit of the doubt, and they don't want to cause this domino effect or hit them when they're hurting the most. So I think there, there could be some kind of a disconnect between the actual fundamentals versus the rating actions. And five or 10 years is, is a very long time. So things can change very dramatically. But let's say that you know, I'm not expecting a state of downgrades at least over the next couple of years. Thank you, Vikram. I'm going to now turn it back to Bill for additional questions, and then we will wrap up. We are close to wrap-up time, and thank you, Susan. Thank you, audience. One observation is, is that in our research at the Volcker Alliance, we have seen that states have multiple ways of managing long-term obligations, some quite constructive, others less so. Uh, Illinois, for example, manages its short-term obligations through a very formalized process of delaying bill payments. It frees up general fund money for other purposes. So you can carry out a management program for a great long period. I just have one question before we wrap up, because several of the panelists have raised this, which is on the overall jobs picture. Mark Slay's forecast doesn't see a return to full employment until 2023. Shelby mentioned in in her presentation that the budget officers are also counting on something like this. There's been a pretty close correlation between changes in overall employment and state and local revenues. So, you know, a quick couple seconds, who wants to speculate on that? Fitch has a similar view. We also don't expect uh, employment recovery to occur for a few years and uh, frankly, uh, to occur behind overall economic recovery, which has been the pattern in most downturns. So I think that's also our view economically, that employment will lag. Well, with that, I think we're going to have to wrap it up because we're just about at the top of the hour and uh, some details. Number one, thank you to our great panelists. Thanks to Susan. Thank you to the 200-odd people who joined us for this program. Please come back to watch the replays on the Volcker Alliance website and the Penn IUR website. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. 
Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.